Good day, everyone, and welcome to the launch of the Resilient Caribbean Cities Photo Competition 2022. I'm Marie Dupar, and I'm with an organization called ODI that's running the competition, together with our colleagues in Suez Consulting, UTech Jamaica, Acacia, and NGen Collective. The main sponsors of the photo competition are the OECS Commission, AFD's ADAPT Action Programme, the University of the West Indies, and Université des Antilles. Most of the speaking in today's webinar will be in English. However, our competition itself is completely bilingual in English and French. Si vous parlez français, bienvenue aussi. Today's presentation slides by our main speaker, Kirk Elliott, will have writing in both English and French, then we'll have questions and answers with Kirk afterwards. Also, you can see in your Zoom screen, there is a Q&A button at the bottom for questions and answers. Please write your specific questions for Kirk here so that he can follow them easily. However, if you have information or comments for other webinar participants, please feel free to use the chat button and write them in the chat box on the right. Now I'd like to introduce my colleague Estelle Rouault from Suez Consulting. Estelle will be available during questions and answers to provide some ad hoc interpretation. Estelle. Um, merci Marie. Uh, Mary, bonjour à tous uh, et bienvenue au lancement du concours photo sur les villes résilientes des Caraïbes. Uh, donc ce concours fait partie d'un projet plus large qui vise à améliorer les connaissances sur comment rendre les villes des Caraïbes orientales plus résilientes au changement climatique. Ce projet est financé par l'Agence française de développement en partenariat avec l'Organisation des États de la Caraïbe orientale ainsi que l'Université des Antilles et l'Université de West Indies. Donc, comme euh, Mary vous disait, je m'appelle Estelle Rouault, je suis chef de projet au sein de Suez Consulting, une des organisations qui met en œuvre ce projet, euh, en partenariat avec l'Overseas Development Institute, ODI, l'Université de Technologie de Jamaïque, euh, Acacia Consulting and Research et Engine Global. Donc, ce webinaire sera principalement en anglais, mais les slides qui vous seront présentés sont en anglais et en français et nous sommes aussi disponibles pour traduire vos questions et les réponses données par notre intervenant Kirk Elliott lors de la session de questions-réponses. Donc, n'hésitez pas à poser vos questions pour notre intervenant en cliquant sur le bouton questions-réponses en bas de votre écran. Vous pouvez aussi utiliser le chat pour partager des informations avec tous les autres participants de ce webinaire. Thanks, Estelle. So, why are we having this photo competition? Well, the Eastern Caribbean is already affected by climate change, and the impacts of climate change look set to increase in the decades ahead. Last year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, said there is increased evidence that human-induced climate change is driving extreme weather, like heat waves, heavy rainfall, and droughts around the world. The ocean is absorbing more carbon dioxide, which is making it more acidic, and this harms corals and other marine life. Sea levels will very likely continue to rise, including around the small islands of the Eastern Caribbean, which could worsen coastal flooding. 
the Caribbean specifically is projected to receive less rainfall in the months of June, July and August in the years ahead. Droughts could become more severe. Caribbean cities, the focus of our competition, are especially at risk from climate change impacts because they're densely populated and low-lying. But there is absolutely hope and many things that we can do to adapt to the climate change that's already happening. There are so many ways that the Caribbean is already responding to climate change and seeking to become more resilient. This includes green infrastructure, such as planting trees on the slopes of hills or planting mangroves on the coast to reduce erosion. Design and technology like energy efficient, climate smart architecture and the use of renewable energy are important for creating resilience. Solutions also include innovations in government and business to reduce climate risks. It's the many hopeful stories of Caribbean climate resilience that our competition aims to capture. Today's main speaker, Kirk Elliott, is going to tell you how to do just that. Kirk is a photographic griot or storyteller of St. Lucia. He is the creator of the St. Lucia Photo Tour, a niche tourism product that immerses travelers in the culture and the history of the island through the medium of photography. In 2019, his highly sought after photo tour was inducted into the TripAdvisor Hall of Fame, ranking as the number one outdoor activity in his hometown of Castries. It's one of the top five photo tours in the Caribbean. Trained by some of the world's top photographers, Kirk is passionate about sharing his unique approach to telling compelling visual stories through photography. He's visited and photographed throughout the Caribbean extensively, and his clients include heads of government and the New York Times. Kirk is a National Geographic Certified Educator, a National Geographic Certified Storytelling Photographer, and a Certified Sustainable Tourism in Small Island Developing States Ambassador. Estelle. Donc ce concours photo se situe dans un contexte de changement climatique et d'impact du plus en plus fort pour la Caraïbe, donc des impacts, des impacts en termes de montée des eaux, d'augmentation des températures, de diminution des précipitations et d'événements extrêmes multiples. Mais il est aussi important de se concentrer sur les solutions et de nombreuses solutions existent déjà dans les Caraïbes. Donc c'est vraiment l'objectif de ce concours photo, capturer en images les exemples de résilience déjà mis en œuvre dans la région. Donc, notre intervenant Kirk Elliott va vous présenter comment capturer des exemples d'une manière la plus parlante possible. Donc, Kirk Elliott est le créateur du Saint-Lucia Photo Tour, donc un produit touristique qui plonge les voyageurs dans la culture et l'histoire de Sainte-Lucie par le biais de la photographie. En 2019, son photo tour a été intronisé au TripAdvisor Hall of Fame en se classant comme l'activité de plein air numéro un dans sa ville natale de Castries et l'un des cinq meilleurs tours photo des Caraïbes. Il a été formé par certains des meilleurs photographes du monde. Kirk est passionné par le partage de son approche unique pour raconter des histoires visuelles convaincantes à travers la photographie. Il a en effet beaucoup voyagé, beaucoup visité et photographié les Caraïbes. Il compte parmi les clients euh, des chefs de gouvernement et aussi le New York Times. Il est éducateur certifié par le National Geographic. 
euh, un photographe de récit certifié aussi par le National Geographic et enfin un ambassadeur certifié du tourisme durable dans les petits états insulaires en développement. Je vous remercie à tous. Kirk, over to you. Thank you so very much, Estelle, and to you as well, uh, Myrie. Um, I am going to be going through fairly quickly with this because we've got about 45 minutes of engagement time followed by about maybe 15 minutes or so of Q&A. We may go a little bit beyond, um, but normally it would take me at least 90 minutes to go through what I'm going to endeavor to pack into um, these 45 minutes or so. So what I'm going to do is without further ado, go into a screen share and then just go straight into uh, the presentation. I'm going to invite folks um, to hold any questions that you have until the end, uh, at which point in time I will work through to answer as many questions as possible. And whatever we're not able to answer here, I will certainly be following up with email. So with that said, jumping right in. Um, this competition is all about showcasing, capturing um, resilience to climate change in Caribbean cities. And I thought it very interesting that it starts out by asking the question, can you capture in a winning picture how the Eastern Caribbean is becoming more resilient to climate change? I thought that I would up this a little bit and change it from asking the question, can you capture, to really taking it and saying to you that your mission is to capture in a winning photograph how the Eastern Caribbean is becoming more resilient to climate change. So we're really making it action-oriented. It's also instructive to note that we have been given specific guidance on what we should showcase and how we should showcase it. So for instance, it's about people power. It's about nature-based solutions. It's about design and technology. And I often like to, to think that races are won in the pits. So if you think about, you know, being at the car racing, for instance, car races, uh, it is really the pit crew you know, the guys who are fueling you up, who are changing your tires, who are doing all that stuff, they are the ones who can make the difference. And really, it is about understanding what to do behind the scenes that brings out the winners. So what we're going to look at today is sort of the work of the pit crew, photographically speaking, that is. From that standpoint, um, when we speak about showcasing climate resilience, what immediately comes to mind, and I hope comes to mind for you as well, is climate impacts that we have endured in the Caribbean. And just a couple of them that come to mind, I thought that I would share here, you know, Hurricane Irma, how it devastated Barbuda back in 2017, with just about everyone in Barbuda having to leave and go over to Antigua or go to other islands. There was also Hurricane Maria in 2017 again, and coming out of that, the most destructive hurricane in recorded history that Dominica has had, and coming out of that Dominica, Prime Minister vowing that that country is going to be the first in the world that is hurricane-proof, that is working really to have climate resilience built in 
to its infrastructure. And then there's even further back Hurricane Ivan that impacted Grenada in 2004. And that hurricane, I can think of being in Grenada some time ago, shooting some pictures, and really noting that the time before when I was there, all of the roofs had been flat or, or, or very gently angled. And now today, ever since Ivan, the roofs are very steeply built. And again, to reduce the impact of hurricanes, lifting roofs off and using them as sails. So coming back to the idea of races being won in the pits, again, it's about thinking of climate impact. And don't only think hurricanes, think the broad cross-section of climate impact. It could be out in our agricultural fields. What are we doing to create greater resilience? That sort of stuff. Now, because this is a photography competition, I'm going to encourage you to seek out pictures and get ideas. And here I've posted uh, just a couple of links that you can use. And also I've noted if you go into Google, do a Google search for climate change images, maybe even climate change in the Caribbean, but go to the images section of Google and look at the images that come up and ask yourself, how do these pictures make you feel? How do they impact you? Also, ask yourself, how would you present those pictures differently, especially if they're in your island? Ask yourself, are they having the maximum impact on you? Could you do it better? So this is all stuff that will help you to really create impactful photography for this competition because again, remember, races are won in the pits and your aim is to win at this competition. So, what makes for a winning image? And my thoughts of what makes for a winning image is an image that tells a unique story that instantly grabs the viewer and takes them into the story. A, a, a picture that, that has a visceral effect on you. You know, you can feel it. Wow, I can see what's happening. I get the sense of it. And that's what you aim to bring out in your photography. And to bring that out, it requires us to go deeper. It is what I like to think of as snapshots versus stories. So your snapshot is, you know, something is happening and you go out and you take a picture of it. But now stories go deeper. You ask yourself, um, what, what is it that I am feeling? How is this scene impacting me? And how do I shoot an image, a picture, that will convey to someone who will never be here the same sense of what I was feeling or what I felt at the time? So it's important for you to always think, am I producing a snapshot? Or am I telling a story? Photographically, that is. And as an example, I'm going to share some pictures with you. So look at this picture here. This was a picture that I shot some time ago over in Kariaku. And I remember seeing this lady um, with a whole lot of produce in the back of her, her Jeep. And I wondered, why have you got all of this? So I went over and I asked her the question. 
And she explained that she goes around, she comes from Grenada, and she goes around the community selling produce door to door. And I asked if I could take a picture of her. So here she is, gorgeous smile, beautiful locks in there. Um, I can see some produce in the back of the vehicle. But question is, is this a snapshot or is this um, a story? What's the story that we are telling? And I would say that by and large, this is a snapshot because here it is, we see her gorgeous smile, but we can't really tell what's all this produce about. As opposed to, for instance, if there were some folks actually buying stuff, picking up some stuff, maybe handing her money, she was taking money from them or she was giving them back change. If we were seeing that and seeing the engagement between herself and a client, that would be a story. So again, just pictorially showing you, giving you a feel for story versus snapshot. Now, check out this picture. Is this a story or is this a story? You take a look at this and here you can see the energy. Um, here are these guys pushing this little boat out to sea. What are some of the things that we can tell straight away from this? These guys are probably fishermen. Look at the way they're dressed, or we might say their state of undress. And it tells the story that they are from the community. And for any of us across the Caribbean who are familiar with fishing boats, we will know that a boat like this never has more than about four or five persons. So straight away, we can see that there are more persons pushing this boat out and we instantly get a sense of community self-help, community togetherness. So look at all that is entailed in this one picture that tells a story, that makes us feel the energy of what's going on. Right here, look at the splash right around the guy's foot. Look at the wave rolling in. Even look at the birds up here. Again, all contributing to the story. So I hope that that is giving you a sense of creating impactful pictures. And even though this picture doesn't necessarily speak to climate change or climate resilience, it certainly gives you a feel for what is required for a story, a pictorial story versus a snapshot. Okay, so now for a little bit of technical stuff. How do we accomplish impactful pictures, pictures that tell our story. And I'm going to just pick up on two items that are integral to great photography. One is how the camera works and really speaking to the interaction of aperture, ISO, and shutter speed. And also looking at composition and just taking in a few elements of composition, that of the rule of thirds, oops, the rule of thirds, diagonals, and establishing a sense of depth in your picture. So, aperture. Aperture is the size of the hole in your lens, and this can vary in size. Shutter speed is the length of time that your shutter remains open, and ISO is the sensitivity of your sensor to the available light. These three individual parameters come together to allow light into the camera that hits the sensor and leaves an impression on it 
which we then take and transpose into an image when we pull it up in our computer. So here, I'm just going in in a little bit more detail and showing um, this aperture, the idea of aperture. And up the top here, you can see different sizes. And each one of these, going from left to right, reduces by half the size. So again, aperture being that size of the hole in the, in the lens, and noting that you can change your aperture. Um, in photography, you'll find that a lot of the changes happen in terms of a halving or a doubling, and also that most cameras will allow you um, natively, that is what comes in the camera factory settings, to change your parameters by one third of a full change or what's referred to as a full stop. So changing by half, from half bigger or half smaller, that's referred to as a one stop change and noting that you can get really sensitive and go down to as much as, or as little as one third of a stop. So here I'm really just giving you a little bit of a feel for the numbers that come up. And for those persons who shoot, those of you who shoot in auto, generally you wouldn't be aware of these numbers, but if you shoot in aperture or shutter speed priority, or you shoot in manual, then these numbers will be familiar to you. So anywhere going from, let's say, f1.4 to f2 or f4 to 5.6, that's a one-stop change. And as you make the shifts in your camera, you will actually see that if you go from f4, you would go to f4.5, f5.3, and then f5.6. And the same thing obtains for every set of numbers going from one to the, the next. There are one-third stops in between. Okay. So now speaking about shutter speed. Shutter speed, again, like I indicated, is the length of time that your shutter remains open for. And again, this can range from a fraction of a second to hours as in astrophotography. And here I'm showing a little bit of what uh, goes into shutter speed, some of the numbers that are related. So going from one second to half a second to a quarter of a second to one eighth of a second, each one of these is reducing by half. Now, the cameras then go to one fifteenth of a second, and really it should have been one sixteenth, but one sixteenth would make it a bit of a challenge computing what other numbers would be. So for ease of computation, uh, the camera manufacturers have gone one fifteenth of a second, so that takes us to one thirtieth, one sixtieth, and now we get to one one twenty-fifth of a second. But if you think of it, we were at one sixtieth of a second, and we really should have gone one one twentieth. But if you come back from over here, if we had gone one sixteenth, one thirty-second, one 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 sixty-fourth, we would have gone to one one twenty-eighth of a second. So it's a toss-up between one 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 twentieth of a second, going from sixty to one twenty, to one one twenty-eighth of a second. Camera manufacturers go in between one one twenty-fifth of a second. And you can see how that makes going forward computationally dead easy. So 1 250th, 1 500, 1 1000, 1 2000, 1 4000, 1 8000th of a second, uh, which is where the high end cameras tend to top out. And most of the, the, the sort of, of um, amateur to semi pro cameras will top out at 1 4000th of a second. And I think just to mix things up, 
uh, Sony has some cameras that will go to one thirty-two thousandth of a second. So just an interesting tidbit there. And now speaking to ISO. ISO, like I indicated, refers to the sensitivity of your sensor to light, the light that's available. And ISO is really a throwback to the days when we used film. ISO actually stands for International Standards Organization because it was the International Standards Organization that standardized um, film speed. So back in the days of film, you'd have 100 speed film, 200 speed film, 400, 800, 1600. Um, and each one of those reacted differently with the higher number, meaning that the film reacted was more reactive to light. So that um, system, that nomenclature has continued forward into the digital realm and it's just understood ISO. Yes, it allows you to shoot better pictures in the dark if you take your ISO higher. In most instances, uh, you will find that shooting in auto ISO is going to bring you back great results. The cameras are really, today's modern cameras, are really doing a great job of selecting the appropriate ISO. For those of you who like to shoot in manual ISO, I being one of those, generally once you're outdoors in the daylight, you want to be working at ISO 100. But sometimes you might find that if you're going to a very small aperture where your shutter speed gets reduced, you might need to bump up your ISO so that you don't end up having camera shake. And that will become a little bit clearer as we go into this section of things where I speak to what I refer to as the exposure triad. So what makes for good exposure, for correct exposure? And correct exposure can be a multitude of different exposures depending on the story you seek to tell. But again, aperture, shutter speed, and ISO come into play, come into bear with each other to really give us um, that correct exposure. And what I've done here is I use what I call the water in a glass analogy. And this is my representation of being a bit of hose. So imagine you have a hose that has got a diameter of whatever this is here. So that's going to be our aperture. Think of it as the size of the hole in the lens. The length of the hose is going to be our shutter speed. The length of time that the hose, um, the length that the hose is, or for shutter speed, the length of time that our shutter is open for. An ISO, think of as holes in the hose where only holes of the same size can be open at any point in time. So now imagine the water coming through this hose filling this glass here. That we will refer to as correct exposure. It's then immediately clear that we could change the parameters of this hose and still have the same volume of water. We could make the hose smaller and we'd have to make it longer um, if we kept the ISO the same. So that's illustrating that here. And that is an important aspect of photography. The changes that you make to your different parameters will impact your pictures and once you have an understanding of that, you have amazing creative liberty. 
And just to, to ex, ex, expand on that, to expound on it, let's just imagine for a moment that we have an aperture of f5.6 and that the correct shutter speed for correct exposure is 1 to 50th of a second. And let us imagine that we're shooting at ISO 100, so our ISO is going to be constant. If we were now to make our aperture twice the size, we would be going to f4, the smaller number. But if we make it twice the size, think back to our hose analogy a moment ago, we have to shorten the time by half. So we have to go to 1 500th of a second. So f5.6 at 1 to 50th of a second is the same exposure as f4 at 1 500th of a second. And let's just imagine that we were to go one, two, three, four stops over. We would have to go from 250, one to 50th of a second, one, two, three, four stops over to get balanced exposure, to get the same quantity of light. So F1.4 at one four thousandth of a second is the same amount of light hitting our sensor as f5.6 at 1/250th, or we could go the other way around where we are at f22 really really small aperture and we are at 1/15th of a second which probably means that we should be setting our camera on a tripod here because we are likely to have camera shake now the question becomes why this and this 1.4 at one four thousandth of a second versus let's say f22 at one fifteenth of a second or any one of these in between and the answer to that question gives us what i like to think of as creative liberation in photography because aperture impacts our depth of field depth of field being what is visible what what is in focus in our picture what we can clearly see so as an example I'm going to show you some images here that I have shot um, and I want you to sort of figure out if you can figure what this is from here and as we go through when it becomes clear to you so this is shooting at f 1.4 very large aperture what is referred to as very shallow depth of field so you will see that the D here in the In God We Trust is in sharp focus. But even as we come to the outsides of it, it's starting to lose its focus on the outside here. It's starting to lose its focus. The O is out of focus. The W is out of focus. And even as we look out here, we can barely tell. Maybe we can't even tell what's out here. What's this sort of thing here that's almost looking like lights at night when the rain is falling? Um, okay, so let's go on from there now and double or uh, rather half the size of our aperture. And notice how more is coming into focus. Also, look at the blob in the distance out here, right? And that's coming into a little bit sharper. But again, we still can't tell what it is. Here, we're at 2.8. And again, now we're starting to get more clarity. F4, uh, let's come up at 5.6. Can we as yet tell what this is out in the water? You know, and just, just wondering about it. Um, can we tell what's over here? Can we tell right now what the structure is? 
and probably you can at this point in time f11 here we are now we're going to f16 and now we can we, we're really seeing stuff in detail and now look at f22 and wow we can clearly see this is a buoy that's in the water that you'd probably pull up to tie your boat alongside and these are boats sitting at the shoreline look over here as well how the in god we trust has come sharply in focus in other words, our, we have got greater depth of field at F22 as opposed to when we were back at, let's say, F2. So again, just going through and giving you a practical feel. And now you must think, how can you use an understanding of depth of field to tell your story? Let's just think again. Climate resilience. Can you find a place where a seawall has been built, for instance? And how would you want to photograph that seawall? Let's just imagine that it's receding into the distance. Do you want to shoot it so that you're showing some of the, 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 the wall in focus and then having it taper out into the distance and going out of focus so that it conveys a sense of depth that, wow, this is as far as the eye can see, we've built up a seawall. This is speaking to resilience. Or do you want to show it at F22 to show all of the wall? So again, this is just showing you a reason why you might want to come out of auto on your camera and maybe go into aperture priority, which means that you set the aperture and the camera sets the appropriate or the corresponding shutter speed once your ISO, well, your ISO is going to be fixed and set anyhow. So that was the aspect of the mechanics of the camera. Now, let's speak a little bit to some aesthetics. Speak into composition. And we're going to start out with the rule of thirds. Like I said, we're going to look at diagonals. And we're also going to speak to establishing a sense of depth. So the rule of thirds really tells us that um, the way, a way in which you can bring across your message in your photograph. So if we think now, um, when you shoot a picture, generally you want to put, you are drawn to put in whatever your point of interest is at the center of your frame. But our eyes are naturally drawn to the center of the frame. And as a consequence, this is the weakest, dynamically, the weakest point the least dynamic, it's a static point in our picture, unless we've got total symmetry. You know, you're shooting a sphere, for instance. Or you're shooting a building that's triangular. You know, so you'd put the peak at the top up here and then bring the sides out into, into the corner of your frame. So the rule of thirds says that if we divide our frame vertically and horizontally into thirds, and if we place elements of interest within those thirds, it makes aesthetically a more pleasing picture, a stronger picture. It, it makes the picture more dynamic as opposed to static. And then diagonals speak to bringing in points of interest, leading your viewer's eye into the frame of the picture by bringing diagonals in. Uh, you can bring your diagonals in from the bottom. You can bring your diagonals in from the top. So if I think of being on the ocean, for instance, I might want to bring a shoreline in off the the the, the bottom diagonal. I might have um, their palm trees. Maybe I bring some palm fronts in up at the top. And then I could have 
the beach area taking up my bottom third, the ocean taking my middle third, and the sky taking in my top third. Now, um, if you go back and you look at your pictures, if you're not familiar with the rule of thirds, if you look at pictures that you have shot that's got the ocean in it, chances are your horizon is going somewhere near the middle of your frame. But just from today's session, you are now aware that this is dynamically not the strongest point, but rather that you should be putting your horizon either on the top third or maybe on the bottom third, depending on what you're showcasing. It's also important to note, as we speak to depth, bringing a sense of depth into your picture, and we brought it up a little while ago with the seawall um, idea. As you have items in your frame and they move from close to you to further away, items that are the same size or items that your viewer will recognize will reduce in size as they go into the distance. That reduction in size gives your viewer a sense of depth because it's important to remember that a picture is a two-dimensional representation of our three-dimensional world. But your mission is still to bring a sense of depth, of three-dimensionality into your picture. So just talking about some of those things there. A couple of other things to bear in mind is that our eyes are naturally drawn to areas of brightness before areas that are darker. Areas, <clears throat> excuse me, areas of vibrant colors, of primary colors, before areas of more pastel-y or muted colors. Our eyes are also drawn to areas that are in sharp focus as opposed to areas that are not as sharply focused. And I'm saying not as sharply focused as opposed to out of focus because you now understand that you can reduce the sharpness of your focus based on the aperture that you select and in so doing, draw your viewer's eye to specific points in your image. So all of these are items to bear in mind compositionally as you create your picture as you build your picture up, as you make rather than take your picture, as you create your visual stories. So here it is, that bit that I spoke about a little while ago, the idea of brightness versus darkness, primary colors, pastels, sharply focused fo fuzziness versus fuzziness. And again, the idea of taking your viewer on this visual journey round the frame of your picture. So as you place element in your picture, you are strategically positioning them, bearing all of these things in mind so that your viewer's eyes will roam around the picture. And you can even endeavor to, to draw them to have their eyes land and remain on par a particular area or even particular areas of your pictures. So... I'm going to share with you now this idea that I call the Michelangelo theory. And it is the one theory that really defines award-winning photography. And this Michelangelo theory, when, when I was putting my photo tour together, um, I deconstructed the way that my approach to creating a picture, the way I make a picture, and it dawned on me that I make 
pictures in a counterintuitive kind of way, a, a, an extractive way, a way of removing things that don't contribute to my overall story. And that is where I came up with this idea that I call the Michelangelo theory. And here's what it is. This is uh, a marble pit, um, a place where marble is extracted. And think of the statue David. It actually started out from a block of marble that could have been mined in a marble quarry just like this. Of course, there wouldn't have been this modern day equipment. But the interesting thing is that the world saw the block of marble. But Michelangelo saw David. And what he did was he used his chisel, his hammer, his water, all the tools that a sculptor would use. And he removed every last shred, every last bit of marble that obscured David. And when he was done, the world was left with the masterpiece that we've come to know and love. My invitation to you as photographers is for you to be Michelangelo-esque with your photography. And what do I mean by that? Let me go back to how I craft a picture. Most people will come upon a scene and see it and go, oh my God, this is beautiful. Bang, 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 bang. They start to shoot pictures. I, on the other hand, will come upon a scene, go, wow, this is beautiful. Now, what is it about this scene that moves me? And how do I photograph it to convey that same visceral effect that the picture that this scene has had on me how do I convey it to a viewer who will never be here? And what I then do is once I identify my subject, I stop seeing my subject. And I start looking around the entire frame of my image from within the camera's viewfinder. And I'm looking for everything that detracts. Um, is a branch out of place? Uh, should I shift my position because this car is in the way? Um, is the light coming from a direction I like or should I change my position? Or should I even come back at a different time of day when the light is coming in at just the direction and just the angle and with just the color I want? Maybe even do I need to come back at a specific time of year because the sun is going to be in a particular spot at that time of year? That is how nuanced, that is how specific I am, how detailed I am when I shoot a picture. I will even go down to the point of, oh my God, there's a scrap of paper. Let me go take that out of the way. And speaking about the scraps of paper, let's just say as an example, how many times have you shot a picture and when you picked up that, you look back at that picture, you go, oh my, I never saw that there. You know, something that clearly shouldn't have been in the way. Or maybe you clip someone's head or you clip someone's feet. And why did that happen? Because you were so busy looking at your subject that you forgot to really remove all of the marble that obscured David. So again, my invitation to you is to become Michelangelo-esque with your photography, with your creation of images. And there's also this other idea that I have, that I share, which I, I invite you to be a photo assassin. 
And it's very interesting because the, the, the word assassin generally has negative connotations. But you'll recall that I, I shared with you that I tend to do things a lot counterintuitively in photography. And a lot in photography is counterintuitive. Like, for instance, who would imagine that the largest aperture would carry the smallest number? Why is that? Why not the other way around? You know? Um, so, the idea of being a photo assassin comes from this. Back in the days of film, you got a roll of film that had 12, 24, or 36 exposures. There was no viewfinder, sorry, not viewfinder, there was no screen, no monitor for you to see what you were shooting. So you had to be on top of your photography game. You had to ensure that what you shot was going to come back, correct exposure, correct positioning, etc., all from just what you were looking at and from your knowledge of photography. And worse still, you only had a limited number of shots in which to take it. You go out, you spend money, you bring back in that film, and God, if it were messed up, that's you. Um, who really wants to trust you in capturing their important memories or their important magic? Today, the cameras, you look at your camera and you go, oh my God, I have 3,768 shots left. So what most people will do is shoot a lot of pictures. What I like to call spray and pray. You know, think that I'm going to shoot a lot of pictures because I must get one right. But the truth is, what you put in is what you're going to get out. So I encourage folks that rather than use your modern day camera like, like a, a, a rifle on automatic fire, on rapid fire, I want you to be a photo assassin and aim for one shot, one kill. That you're going to get that perfect shot in the single shot that you take. But let me warn you from now, it rarely ever happens like that. You will end up shooting multiple shots because there are lots of nuances. But by going in with that mental, that mindset of one shot, one kill, you're bringing yourself closer to getting great and impactful images. And you're also giving yourself less time weeding through those that didn't make the grade. Okay, so that there is an overview of some of the technical aspects of photography, the broader technical aspects that I want you to be aware of in creating your images to showcase climate resilience uh, in Caribbean cities. And what I want to do now, just to wrap up for the last maybe uh, seven, eight minutes, is to share with you some of my images and share with you some of the stories behind those images. So this first one that I'm sharing here, this is from a competition that I took part in last month. And it's interesting that the United Nations um, here in St. Lucia, UNDP, they put together uh, an apicultural um, exhibition uh, in conjunction with a couple of other organizations on island, uh, our local hospitality and tourism association being one of those. And apiculture, that's, that's um, the, the production of honey and um, bee-related matter, beeswax, that sort of stuff. 
Um, and I, I've done some work with the UN, so I got invited in. You know, Kirk, why don't you submit a picture? And sort of tongue-in-cheekly, I was told, and why don't you just submit a picture and win? Um, and I, now I generally don't participate in competitions, but I thought, you know what? Uh, let me offer support. Let me go out and shoot a picture, a couple of pictures. So I reached out to someone who rears bees, and I said to him, share with me some stories about the bees, how bees operate, how they live, how they produce honey. Tell me the story of, of, of the bees, because what I want to do is I want to tell the story from the bees' perspective. I am going to be the bees' spokesperson for this competition. So he said to me, you know, one of the places where you'll find bees is in this vine that grows, that has this beautiful um, uh, fuchsia flower. Generally, you find it hanging down in cemeteries. A lot of people call it the cemetery vine. And then I said, ah, I know the one. Yes, um, there are always bees hanging out in it. So I went out and I found one of those vines. I actually shot pictures one day, didn't like the results that I got because of the lens that I was using. I went back in another day, used a different lens. Um, it, it was a lens that allows me for more, allows more detail. And I then also added a magnifier to the end of the lens so that I could get in tighter. And this was quite a challenge because I'm, I'm on a tripod. Um, I can't use the cable release because the bees are moving so quickly. I mean, three seconds, if that long. They've come, they've flitted the flower, gotten the nectar, and they're on their way. So it was a lot of moving around and trying to get it right and what's not. But I, I understood the picture that I was after. And when I got this one, I was like, great. So now let's just talk about some of what... Um, went into this picture. Look at how I am bringing the stalk right out of the diagonal, leading the eye in. And here in the background, this is the leaves um, of the vine. And you notice how it's out of focus. It's, it's, it's softly focused. So it's a beautiful contrast of color. And then there's a contrast of color over here. This was the sky. But the vibrance leads you right from the stalk into the flower. And of course, the visual reward is the bee that you get. And look at how the hairs are standing up on the bee. And look at how the, 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 the wing is in focus, sharply in focus, and everything else on the bee. But look at this one that is kind of out of focus, softly focused. Straight away, you get a feel. This picture grabs you and takes you into it. Here's the bee just about to dip in to the nectar. Oh, and just to share with you, this picture won the competition. And even as I put in the pictures, I, I went in very quietly, dropped off my picture and left. And every picture's just got numbers on them, nothing to identify who it's from. Later on, when I went back and found out that I had won and I looked at the other pictures, I thought to myself, wow, it's little wonder that I won because every other picture, all the other pictures that I saw were snapshots, you know, pictures of a beehive, pictures of someone holding up something with, 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 with bees on it. But this picture actually went deeper and it actually picked out just one single bee, one single flower or one single flower stalk 
a really tight story. Again, you can see how the Michelangelo theory has applied in here. And just to show you that you can create amazing photography anywhere at all, this is where I shot this picture. So anyone familiar with St. Lucia, this is the way to the boys' school, the St. Mary's College. And right here, this was the vine. These are the vines that I went and shot off right over here on the, on the right. And this bush that's cut here, that wasn't cut the day that I, I went to shoot. So all of this was bushed over, and I had to sort of go gingerly tramping through this, setting up my tripod and whatnot to get that picture in. So again, just to share with you, amazing pictures abound all around us, but you have to visualize those pictures before you even pick up your camera to shoot. This is taking you in a little bit closer and just showing you the area over here where I shot. And again, just showing you a little bit of the vine just so that you have a feel for it. Here's another picture. And this one now is an aerial that I shot from my drone. And again, um, use all the tools that you've got available to you. So if you have a drone, that could be a nice way to bring back in some images. So again, look at the same general theme. The road is leading us, the eye, right across and out to the island. Look at the color of the water here that grabs our eye versus the color of the water over here. But remember how I said to you that, um, that areas of, of primary colors attract our eyes before areas of more pastel-y colors. So as we are going along the roadway, the red roofs over here interrupt us going all the way out to the island. But the island is such a strong graphical element that we still get out there. But this is a little bit of a distraction that takes us away. But at the same time, I could also say that this also leads our eye out to this way. Now, um, out to the ocean over here. Now, look at the car that's here. This car is going out of the frame. And ideally, this would have been a stronger picture if I'd shot with the car going into the frame of the picture, going into the road, um, this direction from left to right. So again, I'm sharing that with you, the nuance of it, and showing you where I didn't get it 100%. But still for that, um, we have a great sense of... Um, this image of the strength of this image drawing us in and for those of us who who want to be creative in photoshop i guess we could really go in and pick this car up and flip it around so that it's going the right way but that's taking us a little bit deeper than just straight photography here's another picture um and again in this picture while beautiful capture i want to share with you um, the weakness in the picture, the failing in the picture. And for me, sharing the failings are important because it helps you as well. We tend to learn more from our errors than from getting it right. So while this picture um, is a beautiful capture, and this was over in Kanawana, I'd actually gone across on a day sail, day trip out to the Grenadines, um, because my friend runs a charter over there. And this is his wife standing on the dock um, and the boat is, this little boat is coming in to get her. And I'm still up at the top here. So I'm very conscious. Oh my God, I don't want to hold them up. So let me run along, but let me grab the shot as well. So as we look at this, you can see how the walkway 
um, leads your eye, the pair leads your eye down into the picture. The boat that is here um, is a nice capture right down the end, as opposed to if this had been empty. Look at, at her over here, the lady right here, and the guy looking across at her. You get a sense of there's an interaction here. But if I come back to the top here, look at how this step up here is not perfectly horizontal. Look at how this banister here, which matches to this banister here, but then I have this one and I don't have the other one. So again, if I had more time, I would have really been careful in how I lined this up and really gotten it perfect and that would have made for a stronger picture. So just showing you the, the, the failing in that picture there. Here's another shot. Um, and this was me looking across at a boat down in the water. This was just as I was leaving Kariaku, heading back to Grenada. And this boat was going horizontally across the frame. But what I did was I bent my camera. So I twisted my camera from the horizontal and actually turned it um, I would have turned it to towards the right, um, no, towards the left, so that now the boat is going diagonally across the frame. So just by twisting the camera, I've lent an amazing energy to the picture. This over here in Grenada, look at this. And actually, I think that this actually speaks to climate resilience. Um, lots of color in here. And check out this shot going from right to left. And let's compare it to this one going from left to right. And it would be interesting to see which one grabs you more. Generally, I like to bring in from left to right, that my diagonal, because we read from left to right. So it's the natural flow for us. And now look at this shot here. We're now looking straight on. And then even coming in where I've come in tighter on the shot. So look at so many different ways, tighter still, of telling stories. So what's your takeaway from all of this? I want you to be bold. I want you to be inspired. I want you to be a visual storyteller. Really think about how you're crafting your images, and what's the story that they're telling. So in essence, I want you to be a boldly inspired visual storyteller. That's the big idea that I'm really putting out to you in terms of telling stories of resilience uh, to climate change across Caribbean cities. So, tell your unique Caribbean story. And what I want you to do, there is a swagger that we have as Caribbean people. I want you to bring that swagger across. And what do I mean by swagger? Let's just imagine there's a hurricane that has happened. You know, power is out and whatnot. And we have the general things of looting and all of that. But also as Caribbean people, we have the stories of caring, of somebody going out and helping their neighbor, of somebody, you know, that, that's us. That's our Caribbean quintessential swagger. And even though we have no power, suddenly we're going out and we're looking for a breadfruit and we're cooking on three stones and we're still having a good time. 
despite the challenges that are before us. That is what I, I seek. I invite you to bring out in telling your stories. So just to wrap it up, how can you connect with me? You can find me on Instagram at St. Lucia by Kirk. My email is kirk at kirkelliot.com. Here I've shared my WhatsApp number, my website, St. Lucia Photo Tours, or if you just Google Kirk Elliott, you will find stuff on me, quite a bit of stuff out there. So with that, I want to say to you, thank you so very much. And I'm going to invite you to share thoughts, comments, and any questions that you have. And this slide here, and the information will also be in the chat, will lead you to the page where you can get more information and where you can register to participate in this photo competition on climate resilience in Caribbean cities. So I thank you so very much. I've actually gone a little bit beyond um, the 45 minutes or so that I promised, but I promised to make it up for you by spending a bit of extra time and I open up now to any questions, thoughts, comments, etc. that you may have, and I invite you to post in the Q&A section. So thank you so very much, and I'm going to stop the screen share now. That was amazing, Kirk. Thank you so very much. I can see that one of our participants, Anne, has left a question for you. Would you like to answer it? Yes, I've just noticed that. Thank you, Myrie. Um, so this question reads, do you use original shots or some of your shots showed are modified by Photoshop or another skill to modify a photo? Um, what a fantastic question, Anne. Um, so what comes off of the camera um i like to think of as the as a raw image capture um i always do post-production on my pictures but i generally do not go in to to alter the essence of what existed so when i go in and i do post-production i'm generally doing post-production that is to bring back the colors that were there because when you shoot in raw, raw is a very flat, very, very muted, very boring looking picture. But now I can go back in and in the raw image capture, bring out the color, um, enhance the contrast. And generally I'm going to what I saw. Um, and I must confess that I have a penchant for going just a tad over when it comes to saturation. And I think that that has really come about because I have been, I love Haitian art. I love the vibrance, the colors, the strength of Haitian art. And I often think that because of the challenges that exist in Haiti, a lot of Haitian artists balance that out by bringing a, a, a sense of vibrance to their imagery that is a little bit beyond the norm. And I tend to bring that out in, in some of my Caribbean imagery, again, because we've got challenges in the Caribbean, but we've also got an amazing swagger. And 
I see that swagger being brought across um, in what I what I bring out. So like I say, just sometimes a tad over in the saturation. Um, but in a lot of instances, I'm keeping it true to form, but also picking days that are just amazing. So I will see a beautiful, crisp day. And I just put everything down that I'm doing and I go out and I shoot pictures. Okay, Dr. Young, thank you so very much for your really kind words. Here is Anne coming back at me. Oh yeah, many thanks. Is it possible to know which you're using more actually? So am I using modified Photoshop or another skill? Uh, to modify a photo so generally um i am um to come back to your question and i am working predominantly in lightroom um and i can process a picture in 30 seconds um i am then going into photoshop to to crop my image i like the 16 by 9 format um i like panoramic formats so i'm generally going in and cropping there um I also want to speak to Anne, the idea of post-production. Um, folks sometimes think that to go in and to manipulate a picture is to not be true, to not be honest. But the truth is, back in the days of film, manipulating images was a common practice. Something that was done in the dark room was called dodge and burn. And you actually have dodge and burn in Photoshop today. And basically what it was, was that you went into your image and you allowed individual exposure to specific parts of your image by controlling how you allowed light to hit the negative. So one could bring back vastly different um, images from the same negative. And someone who was a master at this was Ansel Adams. And I invite you, I invite folks, even as you prepare to shoot pictures, take a look at work from Ansel Adams. Read up a little bit on him. Because truth be told, photography remains the same and images have the same impact. Whether a good image will have similar impact, whether you've shot it, for instance, with a smartphone or you've shot it with the most expensive of cameras. Okay, so let me just continue up through the questions. And Anne, I hope that that answered. Uh, Dr. Young, is there preference for landscape orientation over portrait in photo capture? Um, no. I go with whatever. And, and wow, um, another fantastic question. And I'm going to share why that's fantastic momentarily. Um, I let images guide me as to how do I shoot them. Do I shoot in landscape or do I shoot in portrait mode? So as an example, if I'm shooting a beach scene, um, you know, and it's a beautiful open vista and it's a sunset, let's just imagine, I'm generally going to be shooting that in landscape orientation. And like I say, I might even then crop it to being a panorama. However, let's just imagine that I'm shooting a palm tree down on the beach. So there's this single palm tree shooting up into the air. I'm going to shoot it as a, in portrait mode. 
And why I said that this is a fantastic question is because I also encourage folks that when you shoot, whatever the orientation is that speaks to you, go out and also shoot the other orientation. So the picture is crying out to be shot as a landscape. Find a way to shoot it as a portrait as well. Shoot both ways. And the importance and the value of shooting both ways is that, one, it very often allows you to see things that you ordinarily wouldn't have seen if you had just kept to that single orientation. And two, and I have learned this the hard way, sometimes you have the most beautiful scene and um, you've shot it as a landscape and then you, 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 you have someone go, oh my God, you know, this would make such a great magazine cover. And suddenly I don't have it in a portrait view. So I encourage folks to shoot portraits as well as landscapes when you're going out there and shooting and it's actually going to help add strength to your images. Um, are any smartphone cameras okay or better than others? Uh, Emily, wow, you, you have me smiling. And once again, thanks for that question. And I'm smiling because just this morning, I asked a friend, what iPhone are you using? Um, and she said to me, she's using, I think, the 12 Max or the 12 Plus, whatever. And I went, oh, okay, great, because I need to upgrade my, my smartphone. And I'm upgrading it, one, for shooting video and also for shooting pictures. In a lot of instances, I'm going out there and I'm shooting with my smartphone. And even in one of the photo classes that I conduct, I've got one member of that class. I have an online class where we, 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 go, we meet up monthly. There's one person in that class who shoots exclusively with iPhone because he suffers from multiple sclerosis and can no longer carry the big camera. And it is amazing, the image capture that he comes back with. And if one didn't say to you, you would not know that he was using a smartphone. Okay, so thanks so much, Dr. Young, um, for that. And really looking forward to any other questions folks may have. Um, do you have tips for taking pictures at night? Um, yes. Um, so my number one tip for taking pictures at night would be don't take pictures at night. Um, okay, so that was said a little bit tongue-in-cheekly. But at night, there's a lot of darkness. And there's no burning through that darkness because your flash is only going to capture a certain amount of distance. So unless you're shooting a cityscape, then what I invite you to do is to shoot pictures at dusk. For us in the Caribbean, if you wait until after the sun sets, don't leave when the sun sets. In fact, the magic happens after the sun sets. Generally, 15 to 20 minutes after the sunset, depending on the clouds, the sky can light up in some beautiful colors. Then if you go beyond that, you've generally got, for us in the Caribbean, maybe another um, 
20 minutes to half an hour, you get into the blue hour. And now it hasn't gone pitch black. It's a surreal kind of blue. And you shoot pictures there. One, you're going to need a tripod and a long exposure. And I'm also going to invite you to shoot at a small aperture. Shoot at F22. Especially if you have lights in your picture. Street lights, car lights, um, any sort of lights that are in. Because at F22, you're going to get some beautiful starbursts. And that longer timed exposure will make your pictures actually brighter beyond the darkness that's there. So there are a couple of pointers for you, Emily, on shooting. Um, like I say, not so much in the night, but more at dusk. And if you're shooting at night, make sure that you've got a lot of lights like a cityscape, um, you know, so that you can capture the detail. But also remember that in photography, less is more. So be very selective about what you're choosing to share in your pictures. So I'm hoping that that has been helpful for you, Emily. Can I ask a final question, Carrick, before sure, we wrap Mary. up? Yeah, when I shoot uh, at high noon in the Caribbean, I always have a problem with uh, the picture being really whited out. Um, should one avoid shooting at high noon? And what do you do about glare in general? Okay, so thanks for that question, Myrie. Um, interesting that you should ask about noon, and then I'm going to come back to the glare bit. Um, traditionally, we've been taught, I mean, like you should avoid... Uh, shooting at noon because the, the the sun is overhead and it's casting shadows and if you're taking for instance pictures of someone they're going to have raccoon eyes you know so so their eye socket is going to cast a shadow right down here um i generally i find that shooting I like anyway, if I'm shooting the, the brilliance of the day, the beautiful blues and greens and the vibrance of the ocean, um, anywhere from about 9 to about 11.30 works for me. Um, but sometimes you're out, like you're there, you know, and you're speaking, for instance, Mary, about being in the Caribbean. Hey, that might be the only time that you have where you're at. So shoot the picture nonetheless. If you're finding that your picture is looking a little bit washed out, what I would do is encourage you to go into the manual settings of your camera. So start out by, by determining maybe in aperture priority. Okay, what's my aperture? What's my shutter speed for correct exposure? Set your camera now to that same setting in manual. And then make adjustments to make either your aperture smaller or your shutter speed shorter so that you're reducing the light coming into the camera. And as a consequence, you will be intensifying the colors. So that's one approach that you can take. Um, also, shooting. Now, if you're indoors and you're shooting onto the outdoors, then your scene outside is going to be washed out. So again, coming outdoors and making sure that the light is the same where you're standing, 
as well as onto what you're shooting onto. And that should also help. Now, your question about glare. Um, so it depends if you're shooting, let's say like you're shooting and you're shooting onto the ocean. So again, depending on the way the light is bouncing off, you can have glare because uh, glare is generally caused by some sort of reflection. And there's glare as well as, excuse me, as well as there's flare. Flare being when you're shooting into the light, so the light is coming into the camera and as a consequence, it's making your image look all washed out. So what I generally encourage folks to do is to ensure that you don't have a problem with flare, face your shadow. Find your shadow, face it, and that way you know the light is behind you. And if the light is behind you and shining onto your subject, you've automatically positioned yourself to have an impactful picture. Shooting that way generally can cause your image to look sort of flat because the light is shining directly onto it. So now a more nuanced and impactful image would be if you position yourself sort of 45 degrees to the light and that allows shadows to come into the picture and shadows give a sense of depth. So those are, are things to, to um, watch out for in terms of the glare and the flare. And in terms of glare as well, I encourage folks, the one filter that I swear by is a polarizer. So um, now for folks, I mean, we may not be able to go out and get a polarizer um, but if you have one or if you're capable of getting one, it's the one filter that I recommend. And I invite you to use your polarizer and turn it. It's a filter that goes on the outside of your lens. Turn it so that um, your the image looks darkest. At that dark position, the pictures just take on a beautiful vibrance. So that's something that will help you particularly uh, with glare. So thanks for that. And let's see, are there any more questions? Which camera model do you use actually? Um, if you accept to answer about this. Um, and um, you know, the camera that is best, and I'm going to come back to my camera model, but the camera that is best is the camera that, 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 that you shoot with, that you have with you. So, I, I'm a Nikon shooter. I'm currently shooting with the Nikon uh, D610. Um, so that and my iPhone, I shoot with an iPhone 8 Plus. Um, those are my go-to cameras. I am toying now with, with, with up in changing my cameras. Um, still looking at Nikon, but I'm also looking at something that Fuji has got out, which is a medium format camera. I think it's the Fuji GFX 50. Um, that's a great camera. That's just amazing bang for buck. It's producing 50 megapixel cameras. So you're going to need a rather, you know, powerful computer. And that's something to bear in mind. But just for folks overall, um, the camera you're using doesn't matter as much as um, how you shoot. Okay, so I think I saw 
another question come up? I wonder, is it in chat? Was there anything in chat? Uh, yes, Sandra has posed a final question in the chat. Is there one geographical location you'd like to visit and shoot? Where is that and why? Uh, is there one? So Sandra, thank you so very much for, for that. Uh, for that question. Thanks for joining in. Um, one geographic place that I would love to shoot. Um, um, I'm coming back to Miro. And Miro, I, I, Miro is this little island which is part of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. I think it's got 257 inhabitants last time i checked um tiny island that is being threatened now to be split into by um climate change uh so increasing raising ocean levels and here is this tiny island um threatened to be split into i would love to go out in fact i've got it on my bucket list of things to do to go out and shoot pictures of that island um, to showcase um, the seafariness of the people and of the island and also to showcase the actions that they are taking um, and also what could become of that island. So that's it in terms of, of place I'd love to go to. And for me, interesting as well, keeping it within the Caribbean because the Caribbean has got such an amazing um variety of people places scenes etc that gosh we could spend our entire lifetime just covering the caribbean pictorially and also in terms of other stories so thanks again sandra for that question i think it's probably a wrap now but I just have to thank you again for an incredible presentation, Kirk. We're all so inspired and we can't wait to um, share the recording of your uh, presentation also and really hope to get lots of entries for the photo competition. So closing date, 31st of March, 2022. Get ready and get snapping. Thanks everyone and the best of pictures and the best of luck to all participants. Merci à tous euh, pour votre participation. On attend vos, vos soumissions de, de photos. L'échéance est le 31 mars, n'oubliez pas. Euh, on a partagé dans le chat les liens euh, pour justement avoir plus d'informations. Euh, donc, nous, nous espérons avoir de nombreuses participations de votre part. Merci beaucoup. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.